This podcast was made possible by a sponsorship from Avexis, a clinical stage gene therapy company. The following content was not developed by Avexis. Welcome to the SMA News Today podcast, episode 36. I'm your host, Kevin Schaefer. Joining us today is Mike Blakey from Gainesville, Florida. Mike is a part-time CPA and attorney, and he has SMA type 3. Mike and I met a couple years ago at the 2017 Cure SMA conference in Orlando, Florida, and we're excited to have him on today. So, Mike, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Kevin. Absolutely. This will be a great discussion. So, uh, before we get started, if you could please listen to a brief word from our sponsors. Are you interested in understanding gene therapy? ExploreGeneTherapy.com has helpful information about gene therapy, including its history and how it is being investigated for the treatment of genetic diseases. Visit www.ExploreGeneTherapy.com. All right. Well, Mike, let's start just by talking about your background and growing up with SMA. What was it like for you as a kid growing up with a disability? Sure, Kevin. Um, Well, I was born in the late 60s, so I'm on the older edge of the spectrum of uh, individuals, I think, that have been on your um, SMA News Today podcast. My diagnosis, or my parents started noticing a difference between uh, myself and my peers when I was around three, three years old. I crawled at a normal age, and I was able to stand and walk around age one. It was when I was around three years old and I was having difficulty going from uh, squatting position to standing and um, I wasn't able to run or jump like um, uh, normal kids at that time. Uh, We were living in married housing in Southern Illinois University. My father had returned from Vietnam and so there were a lot of other children around. And so I think my parents had a pretty good basis for comparison. I was the oldest of three siblings. And so their experience about normal milestones and stuff was with me limited. And um, so when I was about three, I remember going to see a lot of doctors and specialists. And it was first around It was in the St. Louis area that I saw uh, many specialists. At first, they thought I might have um, a form of a mild form of polio. And um, at some point, when I was around four or five, we moved to Michigan. And that is where I grew up in Muskegon, Michigan, on the western side of, of the state of Michigan, along the beautiful sand dunes. And uh, at the University of Michigan Hospital, just before my fifth birthday, I was diagnosed with Kugelberg-Wielander disease, which I believe is now titled or called spinal muscular atrophy type 3. And that um, diagnosis initially shocked and saddened my family. The extent of what we were told and knew about the diagnosis at that point in the early 70s was basically a pamphlet, uh, a pamphlet put out maybe by the MDA clinic. You know, the the diagnosis, prognosis and stuff w- was grim uh, or not, not necessarily the most uh, hopeful diagnosis. But anyway, um, I came from a family where education was always stressed. 
to maximize the abilities that you had. My, my grandmother and my mother were both teachers. My grandfather was a small businessman, and I remember he owned a coal company, and I remember he had hired a one-armed individual to shovel coal and deliver coal. I remember he was one of the first businessmen to hire women as truck drivers. And so I think I came from a progressive family when it came to disabilities without realizing it at the time that you dealt, you you played the hand you were dealt with. And um, I don't ever remember, you know, I was always disabled, so I never, never really gave it a second thought. It was just part of who I was and and growing up as a as a kid I always I was comfortable with being disabled but I didn't want to be known for being disabled I wanted to be known as Mike the good-looking funny guy <laughs> or Mike the 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 smart guy or the one that always has a good joke or the Mike with the cool car, which has still never happened, but I, you know, those are the things that that uh, you know shot for that I that I that I um, growing up disabled, I I was comfortable being disabled, but I didn't want to be known uh, only for being disabled. Right, I, right. So um, I went to um, I, I I don't know where you want me to go with this, Kevin, but I well, um, so then I grew up in. Muskegon, Michigan, and I went to public schools with no special accommodations. That's what I was going to ask is what, you know, was there anything there or what was it like kind of navigating the public school system? Because, um, you know, you and I were talking right before this episode, before we started recording about the episode I did a couple months ago with Kelly Miller. And she was talking about her story there, having, you know, no resources or anything, having to fend for herself. Was that what were the challenges of that? So I don't remember when I went to go to um, public schools. I do know that there was a special school for disabled that was part of the school system. I'm sure that when I went for introduction to the schools, that that was something that was uh, discussed as a possibility. I, I know I was assessed and placed and told I was a normal progress or above normal and um, was just placed in normal kindergarten and, and first, first grade. And, and um, I think I was fortunate when I look back at it and that all my schools from elementary to middle school to high school were all one level. And maybe my, the distance between classes and stuff wasn't, as far as it could have been at a lot of schools. And, um, it, but I don't remember that being ever, you know, discussed. What I had the most problems with was as far as the public account was getting to and from school. Okay. School bus steps were always really difficult for me. And, you know, I, I think if I had, this was in the era before lightweight manual wheelchairs and before power wheelchairs, those type of things were never discussed or brought up um with me it was either you went to school and and kevin i i i walked but i struggled to walk i fell down frequently in the ice and snow uh i struggled to get back up when i fell but i didn't know any different i didn't know any different 
And I also came from, I think, a family where if if you felt if, if a child falls down today, I think a lot of parents rush to help them back up. And I don't know what you would call it, hard love or learning how to get by on yourself, how to be independent. But when I fell down, my parents didn't rush to pick me up. There wasn't a, somebody there. They, I think, installed in me a, a sense of independence and try to figure out how to get, how to stand back up on your own. And, you know, uh, I don't know if it's right or wrong. It's just how it was. And that type of mentality, I think, helped me throughout my life. Uh, things weren't always going to be the easiest for me. Um, but I figured out ways to do things, uh, to do things before the ADA came into existence and before there were services out there and public accommodations for disabled. You know, I just, I just, um, struggled and did the best I could and, um, and, and, you know, and, and, and dealt with the falling down and the getting back up and stuff. Nowadays, I think probably uh, I, I would have probably been placed in one of those um, manual wheelchairs that helps you to self-propel yourself. I, those look really right. cool. And, um, I think I probably would have been put in a, a wheelchair at maybe third or fourth grade. And not that there's anything um, wrong or right about either way. It's just um, I think because I was forced to walk – in order to have a normal education, I think I maximized all and every ability that I had uh, growing up with SMA. And um, and anyway, that I hope that that answered that question. Oh, absolutely. Well, and building off that note too about independence, and you know, you and I have had many conversations about careers in college, um, but I wanted to dive deeper into that. So. Uh, first off, can you talk about the transition to college and what that was like for you? Sure. So like I said, I came from a family where education was always stressed. Um, I don't remember ever being, it was always assumed I was going to go to college and that my siblings were going to go to college. All my cousins were going to go to college. It was more like, where are you going to go to college? Not, are you going to go to college? And so as I got older when I reached high school, um, I realized that I didn't want to, it was going to be more difficult for me to live in the ice and snow. And so I started looking at schools uh, between my 10th and 11th grade and in high school. I started looking at colleges in the South. I looked at anything that was South of Tennessee. Uh, so I looked at schools in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, and then on over to Texas and California. And then when I was a junior in, in high school, my father and I took a, a long father-son drive across the country and we visited a lot of schools. And I had a kind of a rough idea that I wanted to go into maybe something in business, but I wasn't sure. And so when I went to look at schools, I was looking at whether there, whether the buildings were close together and how uh, close were the dorms to the, uh, where, where the classes were going to be and uh, were there a lot of hills around. So I grew up in Michigan and most of my family had gone to the University of Michigan and I went to camp a summer camp there 
when I was in high school and I found the University of Michigan, at least where I had stayed and where I was uh, where I was participating in camp, I found it difficult to get around, more difficult than I had anticipated. When I visited some of the schools in the South, it was it, so it, I had a great first impression when I visited the University of Florida, Gainesville, Florida. Whatever reason, all the business buildings were all right together and they were nearby um, dorms. And um, I knew nobody in the state of Florida when I went to college, but I just decided that um, I wanted to try to take that that risk and to go off and do my do my thing. I decided that if I was going to work uh, after after going to college, that I probably stood a lot better chance of getting a job in the region that I went to school. And so it didn't make a lot of sense for me to go to school in Michigan and stay close to my uh, family and support network if I was going to ultimately be looking at working in Florida or Texas or California or or somewhere where it's easier to get around when you're disabled or when you're using a wheelchair. Sure. So ultimately, I think that's a long answer to, I went and looked at probably 20 universities and they weren't necessarily based completely on academics. They were, they were based on what I call logistics. Did, did they have the academics I'm looking for? But then also, was I going to be able to make a, a, a good faith effort at being able to complete the college on, uh, on my own without a lot of outside physical assistance? Sure, sure. Well, I'm building off of that. So like, you're type three. Uh, what kind of needs did you have at that time, you know, that um that you had needed caregivers for and that kind of thing i i didn't need okay. you know when i look back at it um i depended on the, the, i depended on a lot of friends to do a lot of things okay so like, you know it's so when i went to college in the late 80s again this is before the ada there was an office in, at the university of florida that would maybe help with some accommodations so they put me in a first floor dorm. That was the only accommodation I believe that w- that was there. And if there was a class that wasn't on a first floor and there wasn't an elevator in the building, they would consider moving the class if I gave them enough advance notice to a first floor um, level. Um, but those are the only accommodations at the, that, at the public university at that time. So there were some things when I went away to college that I didn't anticipate doing. I didn't realize like how hard laundry was going to be for me. There, there were certain things like that, carrying books and just, and so I quickly learned to ask for help from either my roommates or people in classes and stuff. And, um, you know, that's, it's, it's been my uh, approach and it's been my, um, what I found out is, you know, most people are willing to help if you ask them something reasonable and, and they feel good, uh, helping you out. But, um, so I'm not certain that I would recommend going off without any support to off to college, but at the time, that was the only thing I knew um, to do. Sure, sure. 
Yeah, no, I mean, you do what works for you. I was just curious, kind of, like, um, what kind of independence you had and um, what system you had there. But, um, okay, so, you know, you did your undergrad there, and then you went to law school after um, after that. Could you talk a little bit about that and just kind of the trajectory of your law career? Sure. So after I graduated uh, with my undergrad uh, degree in accounting, I started working for a company um, here in Gainesville, and I went to my ma- I got my master's in accounting. Also, at that time, I thought I was going to um, uh, be a certified public accountant. And uh, I guess Kevin, I should also say, you know, when I was looking at majors, I was also looking at something that I would be able to do uh, to provide for myself uh, to maintain independence and. Um, something that I would be able to do while in a wheelchair because I could see that was where I was progressing. So while I was in college, uh, those first four years, I gained some weight. I was, I mean, I'm 5'11". I weighed probably about 140. And, you know, you things started getting harder for me, uh, getting up from um, a seated position to a standing position. Steps, which has always been difficult for me, became even more difficult. Um, and so I, I want to say that I also kind of fell into the accounting major because I looked at that as maybe a job that didn't require a lot of physical um, activity. And so when I graduated, I got a job as an, as an accountant working as a controller for a, um, a, a mid-sized company here in Gainesville. And that was fine and good, but I found out after a couple of years that I didn't like doing the same thing every day and going to the same office. And, um, and so I got my master's in accounting and passed a CPA exam. And then I had always had in the back of my mind that maybe law school would be something I would be interested in. I, I felt after working for several years as an accountant that I wanted to get out of the office and, and getting into the courtroom, having a, uh, every day, the something different just was something that really intrigued me. And so once again, I looked at a lot of schools um, for, for going to law school. I had decided by the mid nineties that, that law school, I wanted to do it while I was still physically able to do it. When I look back at it in retrospect, I wish I had made the transition to using a wheelchair before law school. I think that would have been a lot better. Uh, a time to make the transition. As it was, I made the transition uh, after law school and before beginning work. And anyway, I that would be one one. Um, there's never uh, like a perfect time, but when sure. you look back at your life and you go, well, it would have been a lot easier to make that transition at that point as opposed to when I was out trying to get my first legal job. And you're trying to figure out, well. Uh, you know, how do I get into this courthouse and how do I do this all on top of learning how to get around in a wheelchair for the first time. So that was a little, um, my first, my first years of being in the wheelchair and as a practicing attorney were a little overwhelming. I bet. Yeah. So, did you ever so use that? I looked at a lot of schools, uh, for law school. I ended up going back to the university of Florida for okay. law school. Gotcha. Um, but, um, you know, that's one of those things, too, where I, I looked at moving to New Orleans and going to Tulane or uh, Emory and moving to Atlanta. 
it was, it was, um, and I visited all those cities and looked at where I could envision myself living for the next 20 or 30 years, which is where we're at now as I talk to you. Um, so again, where you maybe went to graduate school is a, where you might end up in that vicinity, you know, living and working. Um, that's one of the main things I think that if I had to give a small piece of advice to, to individuals considering where they're going to go to school, um, maybe college is going to be the easy part of your career. It's the whole working and living in the, those years that come after college that you need to be thinking about, even though it uh, seems so far out there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Well, and just a quick side note, you know, you talked about the transition to the wheelchair. Had you had a wheelchair as a backup prior to that, or were you just fully ambulatory? I was fully ambulatory, but when I look back at it, you know, I was losing um, – I was losing abilities and I I was depending on, so I look back at pictures and I was depending on girlfriends. I see myself leaning on girlfriends as we're walking and things like that, that I didn't really, I took for granted that I didn't, didn't realize I was doing. And, um, and, and I'm sure some of the, when I made the transition to a wheelchair, there was a lot of, um, actually there was a, there's a stigma that goes along with the wheelchair, but there was a lot of freedom that, that things I didn't worry about anymore. So like going grocery shopping, I didn't worry about how much stuff I got and whether, um, I was going to fall down carrying the bags out to the car. And those, there was a lot of things that, um, I no longer, you know, the, the barriers weren't there. You think of barriers when you're in a wheelchair and there are certain barriers, but there was also certain freedoms that I um, gained by making the transition to a wheelchair. I had also like to say, you know, one of my passions, Kevin, um, has always been watching uh, amateur athletics. Okay. So I would be amiss if I didn't mention that. Uh, so I grew up going to University of Michigan football games with my family. Uh, I wanted to go to a school that had a strong sports program because I enjoy, even though it's superficial and all that stuff, I really enjoy the camaraderie and cheering um, certain amateur athletic events. And uh, football is one of those. There was no handicap or wheelchair seating at the University of Florida for students whenever I came here. My friends and I, I got a lot of piggyback rides up and down the uh, stands of of the swamp at the University of Florida. And, you know, it's just one of those things with how I dealt with things. I I remember going the first or second time uh, when I was a freshman in the dorms with my uh, roommates at the time, and they realized how hard it was going to be for uh, me to climb up the amount of stairs that we had to go to where we were sitting. And the next thing I know, one of them was uh, hoisting me on their back. And, um, you know, for the next uh, four years, and I think that there was a, you know, we always just went to games together and um, that was just how it was. Sure, sure. Oh, yeah, no, it's great things like that that bring, you know, that community together and, um yeah that's really cool and i'm glad you mentioned you know some of your passions outside of work um well and mike on that note too also talking in talking about transitions and um you know your career 
so in 2013, you, uh, and this is something you talked to me about as well, uh, you eventually decided to scale back a little and focus more on your health. So can you talk about what that transition has been like and, you know, just some of the ups and downs? Yeah, when I, um, so I practiced corporate and construction law in Gainesville um, for approximately 13 years full time. And um, I made partner in the latter uh, years, but I was also um, uh, not maintaining a very healthy lifestyle. I gained a bunch of weight. I um, was going to the going to the bar and drinking every day after work, and I was experiencing a series of physical mishaps. I twice I fell down um, getting into bed, and one time it ended up in a broken leg. Another time, after one of my biggest um, legal victories, I was going down these um, brick cobblestoned um uh streets in in the town where i just had my uh my trial and victory and my foot bounced off the um foot peg and i ended up running over my foot and breaking my ankle and leg and um so i was not while i was having great some good success career-wise I was on a downward spiral as far as my health went and um, I didn't have a very good balance. I'm an all or nothing kind of guy and I'm working 60 or 70 hours and burning the, the, the candle at both ends. And so in 2013, after breaking both legs and my jaw in a series of like three or four years, I decided I needed to scale back um, my work activities and take better care of myself or else, frankly, I wouldn't be here today, I don't think. And so for, since, since 2013, I've, I've scaled back my activities to working part-time and I've started supplementing that with, I swim every day. I try to eat healthy. I quit drinking alcohol. I've lost a bunch of weight and which has added a little bit more to my mobility. Frankly, I feel better right now today than I, than I did 15 years, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. It's, um, it's amazing. So, so I guess, uh, you can succeed in everything you want to do and set your mind to career wise, but there also needs to be a balance with taking care uh, of your physical needs and especially those of us with SMA it's it's very easy to get into a lifestyle that's perhaps not beneficial for um your condition absolutely well and also um and I did want to on that note talk a little bit about Spinraza and Zolgensma too but um before just a quick side note too you know um in regards to your care situation you and I have a similar setup in that we've each had the same primary caregiver for several years. Um, I was just curious, you know, about that relationship and how you and your caregiver met. Thank you for bringing that up, Kevin. So in 2013, uh, reached out and ran an ad in the paper, actually, that said you had, I needed a, an aide that was a strong individual that could pick up a I think I put a 160 pound man and had a clean driving record. 
I, I should have done this. You know, this is another thing, like I said, I wished I had maybe made the transition to using a power wheelchair earlier. I should have gotten help earlier. But there, there is no, as far as I'm uh, aware, there is no roadmap for those of us with SMA. We can only learn maybe from others. And so I wished I had reached out and gotten some sort of aid, um, somebody to help me with daily activities earlier, because I think I would have prevented some of those physical problems that I had. You know, it's it's the whole, if I let somebody help me, you know, I, it's, it's a, I, I felt like it was a slippery slope and that soon I would be depending on people for everything and I was going to lose my independence and a bunch of things I didn't, a bunch of things that didn't happen. It's only been a good thing. So I ran an ad and I've been told by many people that my arrangement with my caregiver is similar to the to the movie The Upside, which I haven't, <laughs> yeah. which I have not have not seen. I wrote um, a column about that earlier this year. Yeah. Yes. Um, but uh, so I think my my aide, who's now been my aide for seven years, um, and is I call one of my best friends also now. I lucked out. I lucked out with him. I interviewed a lot of people. But I went with somebody that didn't have maybe much experience um, with caregiving, but was somebody I could see myself being able to go on road trips with, which was what I needed somebody to be able to drive me. And just, you know, somebody that, that I could see spending time with that could do also the physical things. And um, and it's worked out great. I feel fortunate, um, and, I, and I hope I'm able to, seven years from now, be saying the exact same thing. Sure. Yeah, no, and I'm glad you said that about, you know, and I've actually interviewed my caregiver on the podcast um, before. Uh, you can go back and, listeners can go back and listen to that episode. But, um, but yeah, that was a big thing for me as well, is not just, okay, are they qualified, but also, you know, can you see yourself spending time with this person every day and have it because it's a very intimate relationship and um, you want to make sure that it's a person you can not only depend on, but yeah, that you can be friends with as well. So that's really cool that you found that. But so, uh, I, I wanted to just add on to that, Kevin. So I, I use an, uh, my assistant um, four hours a day and now they, um, he comes in in the morning and uh, well, I'm still able to get in and out of bed on my own. I don't feel like I can do it really very safely. And um, so he comes in in the morning and helps me with my um, morning activities and we go swimming every morning. And then he, uh, so we spend about three hours in the mornings and then he comes back and is here for about 45 minutes in the evening to help me into bed. But the rest of the 20 hours and the 24 hour period you know, I'm still on my own um, and, and remain independent. And that has been a good balance for me now for the past, um, a little over six years. That's great. And yeah, I'm I'm glad you said that. And, um, yeah, cause I, I'm always fascinated to hear, um, each person's kind of individual setup and how much care you need, how much you can do independently. So that's great. Um, well, Mike wrapping up here, I did want to talk a little bit about, you know, Spinraza and Zolgensma um, in talking about, you know, your health and just where the SMA community is today. Um, so obviously it's a pretty monumental time um, with the recent FDA approval of Avexis's gene therapy drug Zolgensma. We now have two treatments for SMA. 
So can you just talk about what this means to you and also your experiences with Spinraza? Kevin, I think that this is just an, uh, an exceptionally um, exciting time in the SMA community. Uh, to when I look back at my, um, at my life and uh, going from um, the diagnosis um, in 1974, I, I never um, mentioned in this podcast, Kevin, but I did get genetic testing um, when I was close to 30 years old. That confirmed that original diagnosis back in 1974. And actually that, that was a little, it put some relief just knowing that I had a confirmed diagnosis at that time. But um, I just feel like this is such an exciting time. In my lifetime, I've seen us discover the, the gene um, that was causing SMA in the, in the 90s to now 20, a little over 20 years later, we have two treatments available. I was always optimistic that that there would be treatments available in my lifetime. Um, it, it, you know, I, w- I would say I was impatient, but it is certainly a um, an, ex- an exciting and um, exuberant time in the SMA community. As far as me personally, um, I go in for my next uh, Spinraza maintenance dose. Uh, next month, the uh, that will be my fifth maintenance dose. I believe I've had nine um, of Spinraza doses now. Because I would swam every day in, in the pool, I have noticed subtle uh, beneficial uh, changes to my body since I've um, undergone the Spinraza dosing. And so I, I just can't, um, I'm excited about what the future holds and the treatments that I'm excited for, for individuals that um, are going to benefit that don't even know what the community went through and the enormous sacrifice that a number of individuals um, who are no longer with us uh, made to the SMA community to get us to where we are today. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and it, I mean, same kind of thing. I mean, from my perspective, it's just, it's amazing how far we've come just in my lifetime. But, you know, I imagine, I mean, for years, it's even crazier just because you didn't even have the official diagnosis of SMA when you were younger. So it's just crazy that we live in that world today. So, um, well, Mike, um, I want to really thank you for coming on today and for sharing your story. Is before we close out, is there anything else you would like to say either about your life or just any advice you have um, for other people that SMA out there? I guess the one thing I'd like to say, Kevin, is um, to the SMA, to anyone who's uh, affected by SMA is um, don't be afraid of failure. Um, Don't be afraid to try things. Um, You should determine your limitations and not a medical professional. And uh, I, I do think it's important to be pragmatic and listen to what medical professionals may offer you, but that you should set your own limitations. Absolutely. That's great advice. Well, again, Mike, just thank you so much for coming on today. Um, and this was a pleasure. So um, Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Absolutely. And for our listeners out there, you can hear more stories like this by subscribing to the SMA News Today podcast. You can also connect with us directly on our forums page and follow our main website for the latest SMA news, 
I'm your host, Kevin Schaefer. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. The information in our flash briefings and podcasts are provided for informational and educational purposes only. Be sure to tune in daily to SMA News Today for the latest news and perspectives regarding the disease. All of our podcasts and flash briefings can be found on our website at www.smanewstoday.com. You can also find our podcast and flash briefings on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. And be sure to follow us on our Instagram and Facebook page as well. For SMA News Today, I'm Michael Morale, Multi-Channel Content Director.